with Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Yeah, anyway, we're off. I, um, uh, we're just, uh, uh, I do not want to see a woman simulating sex with a goat. Thank you, Natalie. Um, we're talking about the Polish film festival that Natalie's just been watching. Uh, and uh, I'm not interested. Thank you very much. The a painted bird. Um, <laughs> that's fan club my name is nick and this is nathaniel hello Heck nathaniel up. hello Heck how up. are you i'm all right how are you pretty good i'm pretty good another week another week another 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 battle well apparently well, this is the last week we're allowed to do something next week aren't we are we no maybe not isn't there something happening? Are we allowed to... Is it six people next week outside? Six people outside next week. Six people outside. Yeah, next um, week. By, by next week, um, that's obviously... Um, Not this week. Uh, next week. Yeah, but this is Friday, isn't it? So, yeah, so is next that, week. So next Monday. Hmm. Am I loud enough, by the way? Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm very quiet in my ears. I don't know why. Um... No, it wasn't that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, first rule of fan club. Tell uh, your friends. Tell your friends about fan Hey, guys, why don't you tell your friends about fan club? It's been a while, um, so you're probably thinking, has it been a while since the last time my friends? And if you think that, tell them again. If you think that, hang on a minute, I can't remember. I'm going to tell my friends. means that you're not pulling your weight. We're, we're turning up week on week. Yeah. Uh, to provide uh, five star family fun club fan club, <laughs> what is it? Five star family fun size fan club, right? Oh yeah. Uh, we that our uh, email address is fan club. Well, we should probably second rule of fan club. Come on, that there's an right, order right, for things. Forget. Yeah, second rule. Second, of fan, second rule of fan club, Nick. Just tell your fucking friends. This is a fucking embarrassing waste of both mine. And my ego's time. I don't know how Nat feels. Um, <laughs> you know what? It's on, absolutely guys. not a waste of my time. It's all I've got. Come on. Come I've on, got. guys. We're, we're number 68 in Malta. That seems to be, you know, dithering up and down like some sort of uh, mm. wagtail. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing that goes up and down, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that seems to be uh, uh, going up and down like some sort of um, yo-yo. All right, yo-yo here's, a thing. here's a thing. Why not? If you are in, because we are up 101 places this week, so if you are in Malta listening, and we know someone must be, tell your friends, specifically your Maltese friends, and um, they will look and see next week if we've gone up, and then we'll be able to judge it for once. We'll I, be able to judge our listeners. I've given up on cracking the charts in England, you know. Mm. But uh, uh, and do you know what? Um, it's it's a broken it's a broken Britain anyway. I'm not that, I'm not that, that's why I'm not that interested in uniting them. But let's okay, Malta. All right, a right. Everyone that's listening in Malta, because we're number 68 in the charts in Malta, right? Our Maltese fans, right? I want all of our Maltese fans to write in, right? I want you to write in a bit of fan mail, tell us what keeps you 
coming back one week, leaving the next, and then missing us, and then coming back the next week. Because we are yo-yoing up and down your fucking charts like a wagtail, right? <laughs> right? The other thing I want you to do, um, Malta, is I want you to tell your friends, and let's aim for, I don't know, the next... Hmm. Let's aim to get up to... Well, the population of Malta is over... 425,384. That's manageable. Tell all your friends and let's try and get in the top 10 in Malta. Yeah. Uh, at some point within the next mm, uh, four weeks and we'll, we'll monitor it, right, Malta? But we want we want to try and get in the top 10 in Malta, right? If you're not from Malta, and even if you are from Malta, uh, write your fan mail in to fanclub at foobarradio.com Mm. We've never said that out loud before, so somehow no. the fan mail has been getting in. Yeah, no, it's quite impressive. Well done, <laughs> so everyone. I, well done for well done for cracking that code because we I get very little on Twitter, and um, <laughs> yeah, so apparently, it's we've, got like, apparently. apparently we've got listeners. We've ne- we're like the man in the iron mask, the men in the iron masks. Mm. Um, where we, I don't, I don't really know that version, that story, um, but basically we don't know any information. We're more so like we a sort of trawlermen on a on, out in the sea, and they're trying to reach land by Morse code and going, "Can anyone, can anyone hear us?" And there's someone in Malta going, "We can hear you, but we're not really, we're too far to get to you." But yeah, from, we're more. We're. Do you know what we're more like? We're more like. Um, uh, they're not the rebels. Who are they? The resistance. We know like the resistance uh-huh. in uh, episode nine, the rise of Skywalker. And uh, we're like going, hey, guys, give us a hand. Uh, oh, oh, we're like the resistance at the end of uh, The Last Jedi. Uh, episode eight. Uh, obviously, at the end of episode eight, no one comes to their assistance. And all 12 of them have to go off on an adventure together. Uh, but um, at the end of episode nine, spoiler alert, uh, Fat Lando arrives and saves the day. So, uh, which is what I think what everyone wanted to uh, at the end but of been, that. It's what the saga been building to. Building to uh, Fat, Fat Lando turning up and giving giving himself a, a little high five. Yes, we did it. Uh, yes, I'm. I outlived them all. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, so Malta has 14 public holidays a year. Come on, guys, why not choose one of those days to tell your friends? That's a perhaps if you're in a neighbouring country to Malta, you could take a little trip to Malta, put on fan club while you're there, boost us up a bit. That's a, that's a f- 14 public holidays. That's a fortnight off. Yeah, it's all right, isn't it? You might as well use one of those days to uh, binge some fan clubs. Uh, Malta has one university, uh, two if you include the University of Fan Club. Um, (laughs) uh, Gladiator, World War Z, Captain Phillips. I refuse to call it World War Z. Captain Phillips and Game of Thrones have all been filmed in Malta. And spring hunting is still legal in Malta. Um, God, well, I guess that's how they stuff beds. Yes. 
Yeah, come on, guys. Keep up. This is gold. Um, right. So, um, so that's that's all of the bits and bobs. That's a fan club at foobarradio.com. Yeah, that's right. I got, I got it. Right. Gave me a bit of homework to do, Nick. And I was, I'll ask you the question as well. Did you see the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League? Well, okay, right. So I've got I've 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 got a bit of a bit of a bit of a, um, I've got a bit lined up. I don't normally prepare for fan club. It's yeah. part of its part of its gifts, part of the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, no prep required, except for this week we did a bit of prep, didn't we? Mm. Um, uh, it's weird, weird week this week. We've already filmed the second hour. Um, and recorded, <laughs> I, I recorded it, and uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but. <laughs> Now we've got this. Now we're doing the first hour, but we've already done a bit of homework. That um, we 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 collectively yeah, um, took part in the thing that our guest is promoting after we interviewed the guest. Yeah, we told the guests. We told the guests uh, in the second hour that you're yet to listen to. Yeah, that we haven't done it yet, but we have since done it. And so we might talk about the fact that we've done it, and then a bit later on in the show we'll be talking to the guest and we'll be telling the guest that we haven't done, haven't it. done it yet. So, um, so that might be a bit confusing to some of you. And then for homework, because because this weird and jumbled because our guest last week couldn't record on the day that we recorded the first hour, so we've actually recorded three days in a row, had a weekend off, and then and so it's kind of like what you know we are. Well, don't worry, guys, we are. Uh, nerds, we're still nerds. We're still... <laughs> um, don't worry. Don't worry, Malta. Don't, don't worry, Malta. We're still we're still nerds. Um... <laughs> uh, but we had to do a little bit more uh, extra. Anyway, so 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 ask me, ask me, ask me that if I've seen did I see the. Hey, Nick, have you seen the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League? Interesting you should say that, Matt, because uh, um, I set aside I set aside this weekend to watch Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the four-hour Justice League cut. I set aside this weekend for it, but um, I was um, on the, on the build-up. I, I, I kind of like was a little bit fuzzy with... Um, with the, with the previous films, so I thought, what I'll do, right? And uh, uh, so I thought, what I'll do is I'll watch all the previous films leading up to it uh, uh, this week, um, and then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll watch uh, Justice League at the weekend, uh, building up to it. So what I did was I watched. Uh, so so there's, uh, I think there's five films in the series. Uh, there's uh, Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. and then there's uh, Justice League, and then there's some others after. But I'm I'm not talking about them. I'm just talking about the ones that are building up to Zack Snyder's Justice League. And no. there's also the original Justice League, which was Joss Whedon's Justice League. So you got to watch. So there's five films, and then there's the then there's the uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, you know, which is like his original vision. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, uh, so, so, started off with uh, Man of Steel. I watched Man of Steel, uh, which is like a two. It's just over. It's like two and a half hours long. Man of Steel. 
So set aside that. I watched I watched Man of Steel. Uh, I think it's I, I didn't like it at the time. Didn't like it when I originally saw it back back when it came out. And uh, nothing's changed. I still don't like Man of Steel. I think Man of Steel yeah. absolute absolute uh, rubbish film. Rubbish. I hate it. I hate Man of Steel. If anyone's wondering where I stand on the DC universe, I've always been a Batman fan. Uh, prefer Batman to any other superhero. Do, not a fan of the Marvel movies, but these DC movies, you know, I, that's where my heart lies. I always want them to do well, but I've been, uh, you know, I've been sorely disappointed, broken hearted a few times. Uh, and this man of steel, no, not a man. I'm a big fan of Christopher Reeve, but uh, no, I'm not, not a big fan of this man of steel. Uh, it's two and a half hours long, two and a half hours long, so it's sort of Man of Steel. Then I went on to Batman versus Superman, which is sort of a sequel to Batman of Steel that's introduced in the Justice League, slowly but surely, start with Batman and Wonder Woman. Uh, there's obviously the cinematic cut was two and a half hours long, but uh, I, I watched the director's cut, which is three hours long. It's just it over three hours director's long. Cut, didn't director's cut. Director's cut. Absolutely makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense, but it's a terrible film. It's fucking well, it's three hours just over three hours. Batman for Superman is terrible 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 film. Terrible film. Uh, but you know, I watched it, I watched Man of Steel, I watched Batman vs. Superman, and I went up to Suicide Squad, which also has a director's cut. Where it's not really a director's cut, it's an extended cut. There's about 10 minutes extra footage in it. I watched that. Uh, just over two hours long, so we've watched two and a half, three, just over three hours, then just over two hours long with Suicide Squad. Terrible film. Absolutely terrible. Uh, hated, hate Suicide Squad. Hate one of the only films I've ever walked out of. In fact, I walked out of Suicide Squad, hated that film, uh, hated it at the cinema and uh, hated it again when I watched it uh, this week. And, uh, uh, and then there's uh, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, I enjoyed that at the cinema. I remember enjoying that at the cinema. I think that uh, I think it's uh, two thirds of that film. Uh, the first third is getting to know her. Uh, second third is let's start an adventure. Third third is CGI madness. And, uh, yeah, it's a terrible film. Uh, starts good and then just progressively gets worse and it's just it's unsalvageable, terrible, terrible film. So that's just... But that's just over two hours, that is. Another two hours. I think it might be almost two and a half hours. It's, 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 a, it's a longer. It's two and a quarter hours, I think, is Wonder Woman. So, yeah, no. Then I watched uh, Justice League. Justice League. Well, the original Joss Whedon Justice League, which is, uh, you know, the culmination of all of these four films building up to Justice League, Joss Whedon's Justice Probably League. Probably done at this point about ten hours, easily. So, 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 so just Justice League, watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just, uh, just under, just, uh, just under, just over two hours, that is, just over two hours. Watch that. Um... And uh, and that is, I think, one of the worst films I've ever seen. Just absolutely terrible, 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 uh, terrible film. Uh, awful film. Awful film. Um, uh, and then now you ask me. Uh, so, um, so, you, uh, so 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 did you did you watch Jack did you watch Snyder's? the uh, Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League? I didn't want to waste my time now. <laughs> There we go. Something <laughs> some for our Maltese audience. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I watched it. I did. I did yeah. watch, I watched I watched all of the DCEU in the week. And that's pretty much what I think. I think Man of Steel is awful. I thought it was absolutely dreadful, that film. I I, I don't hated it. 
I know some people like the serious approach. Um, it's, it's a weird franchise, basically. I tell you what, this DCEU is a very, very weird franchise. Obviously, Batman died in 1997 with uh, Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. And then Christopher Nolan brought Batman back to life again in 2005 with Batman Begins. Won loads of Oscars with The Dark Knight in 2008. And then uh, finished it all off in 2012 with The Dark Knight Rises, which I thought was fucking awful. The Dark Knight Rises was awful. I like Batman Begins a lot, probably my favourite of the three. And then, uh, and and I think moments of um, The Dark Knight are amazing, but I always, you know, I've always felt like it's a bit, it's like Christopher Nolan embarrassed to be making superhero films. So he makes them like heat. Um, and so... Man of Steel came about, which was that um, Christopher Nolan was like, oh, we could reboot Superman the same way that we rebooted Batman. We'll make it really gritty and serious and down to work. Didn't he? And he said, I don't want to direct it, but I'll." he wrote the story for it and um, brought Zack Snyder on. Mm-hmm. And Zack Snyder sort of like pitched him a thing to make it kind of... And again, like The Dark Knight is Batman and the Man of Steel is Superman. And so that's what they, you know, it's to tie in with Dark Knight. Yeah. It's Man of Steel will make, will do for Superman what we did with Batman. But it didn't work, really. No. And um, I think the idea I, was it was very much originally in that universe, wasn't it? It was like the kind well, of, it was the this Superman is, version of the, the Dark Knight. There's a shot of a satellite at one point in... Um, uh, Man of Steel that's got a Wayne Enterprises logo from the Christian Bale era. Right. And um, and so it's sort of meant to be in the same... It's meant to be in the same universe, but then you, you can't really imagine Superman living in the Christian Bale universe. But I think the Christian Bale stuff is, like, it's great as an isolated... I like what they're planning on... They've fucked up so badly that basically they've got to introduce lots of different versions of all of their characters. So you can pick and choose which characters you like and which you don't. Because some of the characters work, like Harley Quinn, Ben Affleck's... Ben Affleck as Batman, but not necessarily his Batman, who's a murderer. Um, which is, like, the whole... Mm, the whole point of Batman. Is, There's no more orphans! We're not making any more orphans! And then you've got Batman with the machine gun going around, you know, obliterating bad guys. Um... So, like, so there's elements of the new DC stuff that works and elements that doesn't work, that don't work. For instance, I think um, Jared Leto's performance in Suicide Squad is absolutely appalling. Um, and I know, that's, I know that's been well said, but literally, I don't know if... I think Jack Nicholson was at least nominated for an Oscar. Like everyone around him that's ever played that part in the last 30, 40 years, has got an Oscar for it. And then Jared Leto comes along, and it's like the most Route 1 performance of what you'd do if you were a supervillain. Like, it's absolutely fucking... He's trying to do something different because he doesn't want to be seen to be copying anyone. But I think that he... Oh, it's... Or, it, like, it's like a pantomime... Um, it's And I know that the joke is obviously meant to be... Well, he's not meant to be, but the Joker is sort of like a pantomime villain. But, I mean, fuck me. Um, I think when you see Whackin' Phoenix, he only changed his performance... He only changed his version of it slightly from Heath Ledger. Well, no, that's not true. But, I mean, the look of it was slightly different. It wasn't 
that far removed, but it was different enough to get an Oscar. Whereas Jared Leto is like, he's based it on Skeletor from the He-Man series. <laughs> Jed Nicholson was not nominated for an Academy Award for Batman. Um, he's, yeah, he's, he's essentially, down to his laugh. Yeah, it's he's like, actually, from the cartoon Skeletor, it's that. It's no, yeah, that not, the, not, not the Frank, Frank Langella powerhouse performance in Dolph Lundgren's Masters of the Universe, yeah. but Skeletor from... Um, from the TV series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Anyway, so I think Man of Steel is awful. I think Batman versus Superman um, is largely it's muddled, confused, overcomplicated. Yeah. Um, the director's cut helps clarify some things that are confusing, but actually, it's uh, the problems with the film are in its inception. Although I think that. All of the criticisms for the finale of Man of Steel, where they basically obliterate, they level an entire city, um, and everyone was like, well, what about the people in the buildings? Mm. So to start off uh, Batman vs Superman by addressing that, I think is yeah. great. Yeah. And it's a really good way of introducing Bruce Wayne into starting some uh, beef yeah. between him and Superman. i got to say as well, I... I don't mind um, Henry Cavill. I think he sort of looks the part, but I've never really warmed to him, and certainly not as Clark Kent. Whereas I would say I like Ben Affleck as Batman. I think he's really good, and I, I like the design of Batman, and I like the way Batman looks and is used in Batman versus Superman. Yes. I don't like. I like. I like the fact that he's doing detective work as Bruce Wayne. Mm. So he's going to like bar, like he's going to like uh, fight clubs, underground fight clubs, and he's, um, you know, uh, uh, cloning people's phones and stuff while he's at the bar. Yeah, you know, I, I like the fact that exactly. It's it's a, it's a it's a a good you, it's a good version of the character searching for a film to be in. Mm. And um, also, it makes think, me think when I watched it that Zack Snyder is interested in Batman in a way that he's not interested in Superman. Yeah, I think that Christopher Nolan did Batman, pitched Superman, and Zack Snyder was like, I want to be in that universe, but as soon as I get an opportunity, you know, the very first sequel to Superman is like, can we do Batman? Yeah. Um, and uh, and actually, I think that... that um, I, I think that I'm really not interested in this Superman film. Really not interested in a team-up film. I'd rather just have a straight Batman film mm. than... I, I, anyway, so then you get Suicide Squad, which is the only film that I've ever walked out of. And I, in my adult life, I thought I, was, I can sit through everything, but that was, that was too much for me. And then um, uh, Wonder Woman, I really loved at the cinema. I still think it's great, um, but I do think the end is a CGI mess and... Mm. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I think um, it's all right. I think it's all right as a film, but I don't, I certainly didn't love Wonder Woman in the way that I know a lot of people did. And I was a I bit if disappointed. There's bits I of it I like. If you're comparing Wonder Woman to Goodfellas or Taxi Driver, it's, it's obviously doesn't stand up. But if you're comparing it to Suicide Squad and the stuff that's come before it, it is a breath of fresh air where you've gone, oh, um, and also just having the, the opening with like lush green fields and Greek pillars and beaches and blue sky is such a welcome change from the dreariness that you've had so far 
uh, um, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot visually going on in Wonder Woman that makes it interesting and different until you get to the last, you know, 45 minutes where mm. it's just like this, just, which is what, what when you watch them all back to back, it's the theme. Uh, so we've got up to, we've got up to Wonder Woman, which means that the next one is, uh, well, let's just do just Justice League really quickly. And then we'll talk about Justice League after the song. Okay. So so the Joss Whedon Justice League film is like this. What happened was uh, Joss Whedon took over from Zack Snyder halfway. I mean, this is well, if you listen to the show, you know this, right? But Joss Whedon took over from Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder had a personal tragedy, left the project, uh, or was forced out of the project. Who knows? Joss Whedon took over because basically Marvel were going, uh, uh, DC were going, well, Joss Whedon did Avengers, so let's get him to do halfway through the process. Mm-hmm. They started filming basically two weeks after Batman versus Superman came out, and it was all prepped before the reviews for Batman versus Superman came out. So then you got Justice League by Joss Whedon, which he still says directed by Zack Snyder, and it's kind of like this very rushed, cheap-looking. Uh, I think it's I think it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. The only reason I didn't walk out of Justice League was because I'd seen it at IMAX and I'd paid like 75 quid for two of us to go and see it at plus drinks. And it was just like, I can't, I can't leave that much. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I need to, I'm paying that money for an awful experience, but it's an experience that I will have forever. <laughs> but I'm not, I have not enjoyed it. I hated Joss Whedon's Justice League. Um, yeah, me too. I thought it was a dreadful film i would say as well in fact i'll probably go on to this let yeah let me just say that i'll put a a flag in it and say i thought it was dreadful i couldn't believe it was as short as it was uh given there was such a build-up for it for all the other films it just felt like there was this build-up to this thing that was like it was like a firework that didn't go off you go what what is this um i thought everyone was pretty bad in it i thought the guy who was the flash whose name I can't recall, was awful. Ezra Miller. Ezra, Ezra Miller. Miller. I thought he was dreadful. I thought he wasn't funny, but he's like the comic relief. He's like sort of Saturday morning cartoon level, kind of wisecracking, but like it's, none of it's funny. Um, I was sort of, I thought it was ridiculous that you would do a Wonder Woman movie that was kind of like a female empowerment movie, and then the first shot of you in a just, of her in the Justice League film was like a shot of her ass in close-up, and it was just that, You've just completely changed his character. He's been in one other film. I thought the guy who played Cyborg was kind of bland and forgettable. Um, and I just thought the whole film was just... It felt like bits were... It did feel like bits were missing. They're all looking for mother boxes, some of which seems to happen off-screen and just gets referenced. And you go, well, why don't you just show us it? Show us when that happened. It's all, it all just was a total mess. I thought it was, had this weird sort of sense of humour to it that I thought, that felt like, you know, it really did feel like it was a reaction to the reviews of Batman versus Superman. And the whole thing felt hurried and rushed. And it came out a year after. And I was like, you can't have made a film like this in a year, can you? And they hadn't. It felt like this thing had been thrown together last minute. I thought it was dreadful. Mm. Yeah, I've just I've just realised we started ten minutes late as well, so I'm I'm going by the wrong clock. So we do have a bit more time to talk. Um, 
I would say that rewatching these films, um, this is such a weird rushed franchise mm. where where Marvel took their time to build up this thing and then DC just sort of like rushed it. And it's saying something, I think, that in rewatching them, the first hour of Suicide Squad, even though that was chopped the fuck out of, that was taken away from David Ayer, the director, and handed to the uh, editing team that edited the trailer for it. So uh, Guardians of the Galaxy came out uh, over on Marvel, and it was very popular. And then when Suicide or maybe the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was coming out at that time. So when Suicide Squad came out, uh, they were just like, well, we should probably try and make this more like Guardians of the Galaxy than anything else. So they changed all of, like, the, the colours in the film. Uh, they marketed it with Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, so Bohemian Rhapsody, the trailer was edited to Bohemian Rhapsody, which was a trailer that was designed to amp up the fun factor so that people would watch it and they'd go, oh, that looks like a fun movie, let's go and see that. But in actual fact, it was a fun that was not evident in the film. So when the t- the, the reaction to the trailer of Suicide Squad was so like, big, everyone said, oh, this looks fucking incredible. They realised that they hadn't made that film, so they went away and they re- they gave the film, they took it away from the director, David Ayer, and they handed it to the editing team that made the trailer, which is a company that edits movie trailers. They don't edit movies, they edit movie trailers. And they re-edited Suicide Squad. So when you watch Suicide Squad, Will Smith... Every single introduction to every character has got a piece of popular music which tells you who they are. Um, the whole film is starts with House of Rising Sun, which is the penitentiary that they're all in. And then you've got Sympathy for the Devil, where you're introduced to uh, Amanda Waller, uh, or she's like the devil. Uh, you know what I mean? It's kind of like everything is so on the nose. Um, and uh, You Don't Own Me is when you get introduced to Harley Quinn. So everything's... That, they introduced Will Smith's character like three times, I think, in the first... Uh, we've said this before, but like... If you watch a film like Con Air or you watch a film like uh, Predator where you've got a men on a mission movie where you've got like a, a large group of people that are on a mission, uh, they just introduce all of those characters really quickly. You know who they are straight away just by a line of dialogue. Uh, and then they're on the adventure. Whereas with Suicide Squad, it takes something like 40, 50 minutes before the actual film starts because they're introducing all the characters. And, like, who's this for? Because if you've read the comic books, then uh, you know who they are. So just give, like, a line of dialogue here and there and then get them off and running. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't know the comic books, who gives a fuck how much time you spend on them? You're not going to condense their entire career in comic books into... And also, you've bastardised them so much, you know, that they don't look anything like the comic book. Do you know what I mean? So it's just kind of... So Suicide Squad is an absolute fucking mess. But what I would say in watching them back, especially after Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman, is that first hour of Suicide Squad is more entertaining, I thought, this time, than the other two films. Taking Batman out of that. Because I love that. Um, and then the second half of Suicide Squad is so bad that, yeah, I would have walked out of it again. It's, it's absolutely... <laughs> a 
appalling. And I don't think a director's cut or an extended cut or anything else can fix Suicide Squad. And it's saying something that Marvel is so de- that DC is so desperate to copy Marvel that they kick uh, Zack Snyder out of Justice League and replace him with Joss Whedon. And then David Ayer isn't coming back for Suicide Squad 2. So they're rebooting Suicide Squad with James Gunn, who directed Guardians of the Galaxy over at Marvel, and they're just calling it The Suicide Squad and present, taking Harley Quinn out of it and putting her in the sequel, but pretending like basically none of the rest of it... Ha- you just don't... You can't... This is like Star Wars all over again, where it's like these are, these are mega-budget, you know... Uh, so the DC film universe including Christopher Reeve has been around since 1978 why does it why I mean is there not a book I can't understand how there's not like a book you know at Lucasfilm or at DC where it's kind of like if we are ever going to make a Superman movie or if we're ever going to make a new trilogy of Star Wars films this is what they'll look like do you know what I mean like they've got it in their back pocket for a rainy day which is like, if we get, like, uh, our dream come... You know, if we get a magic wish granted, then this is what we'd do. It's literally, they've gone, oh, we're going to make a film. Fuck. Uh, uh, um, uh, empty, empty, <laughs> empty your drawers and let's, like, put mm. a fucking... Well, it does like, very much feel like they always wanted to do it as, like, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So at the opportunity that that guy could do it, it was like... Yeah, that's sort of what we want. We want it to be like that. Let's get him in now. And luckily for them, uh, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of uh, paedophile jokes were found on his Twitter account, <laughs> and he was fired by Disney uh, and uh, went over to DC, which is great. Lucky for lucky for DC. Uh, and Disney have since uh, <laughs> found out <laughs> that actually no one cares that much about the jokes. So they've rehired him for Guardians of the Galaxy Three. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, so that's I guess where we are. You get to you get to Justice League. You're right. It's like an absolute damp uh, damp squib. Um, yeah. Should we play a song now? Let's play a song now. And we're back. Um, okay, so this is the moment everyone has been waiting for. I feel like we've been leading up to this moment for years now. The whole of these films, these films have been sort of like released and put together. I feel like for years and years we've been leading up to this moment. So this is our one-word review for Zack Snyder's four-hour. It's not four hours. It's three hours fifty-six. Come on, guys. <laughs> credit where credit is due. And one of the things I was actually really impressed with was the fact that it was free with my Skybox. I haven't seen Wonder Woman. I'm such a huge fan of Wonder Woman, the original, that when 1984 came out and it was 1799 to watch in my fucking living room, you know, the best thing about being in the cinema is throwing popcorn and sweet wrappers all over the floor and letting some other come and pick them up. That's what I pay my money for in a cinema. <laughs> fucking, I'm not going to pick up my own fucking... Uh, Soiled underwear from my own fucking living room floor uh, for seventeen ninety nine. Um, so I'm not doing that. So what, it came just as it came free with my Skybox. All I have to do is download it, and then and then it's there to watch. So th- I feel like 
our whole lives in a way have been leading up to this. <laughs> so three, two, okay. Uh, this is our Nathaniel. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So do, do we do it on one or? Are we doing on one word or two words? One word. Right. Two words. Okay. Is it normally two words? I can't remember. Is it one word or two? Let's do two words. All right. Okay. On on go. Yeah. Three. Justice League. Zack Snyder's Justice League. Four hour, three hour, 56 minute cut of Justice League. Three, two, one, go. Too long. Absolutely fucking brilliant. Really? Did you like it? I loved every fucking minute of it. Did you really? I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was too long i thought it was for not like it's but i wouldn't say it's super boring i would say it's it's my my experience of watching it was bizarre because i watched two hours of it and i spent two hours going so what's new then what's new what have you put in and then realized i'd gone past the running time of the first one and felt like wait we only seem to be about halfway through and we like there's only been like a couple of bits i went that's new that bit's new. Um, it, it, what it, on its positive side, it continued to have um, Batman, Ben Affleck, Batman, and I went, I like him as Batman. I think he's good. When he's on screen, he's good. It's weird when he's fighting fourth world alien characters. Still don't really like that. Um, it removed a lot of the stuff that I assumed would be in it anyway. Like, it removed a lot of the stuff that I found super annoying in the Joss Whedon cut, it no longer has... Like, like, like what? The Wonder Woman arse scene. And, yep. and it removes a lot of the terrible jokes that... Like, they, take out, they take out three bits from the Wonder Woman bit. They take out the bit when Ezra Miller, when Flash ends up on top of her. Yeah. They take out the bit when... Um, they take out four bits, or they take out three bits. They take out the bit when Aquaman is sat on her lasso of truth and basically says he wants to fuck her in yes, yeah. uh, the Batcave. Uh, they take out... Um, for the better, I've got to stress. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, take, yeah. It was so... I thought one of the worst things about Justice League was what a betrayal of the Wonder Woman character... Mm. I mean, this is what you said, but, like, the other thing was, like, there's a bit when, basically, Alfred is, like, elbowing Bruce Wayne, going, eh? What about Wonder Woman, eh? You probably want to fuck her? Huh? Huh? (laughs) And then all the way through, like, Alfred is, like, going, oh, um, looks like Wonder Woman has to meet um, Cyborg somewhere. And Alfred goes, looks like you've got a date. At least someone around here has got a date. So are you desperate for Bruce Wayne to go on a date? Or are you desperate for yourself to go on a date? What, why are you obsessed with dates? Is that your big thing now? That you want you want Bruce Wayne to start dating? Surely you should get him to stop killing people and then build up to dating. Do you know what I mean? And so they took that out. And also there's the scene with Cyborg where she meets Cyborg in the street, which in the Joss Whedon cut, I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just sort of like picturing it differently with everything else that's edited around it. But I remember that 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 scene in the street being very Wonder Woman's ass centric, 
And in this one, it felt like that was just the angle of the shot. Mm. Whereas in the Joss Whedon one, it felt like they were literally uh, lingering on her ass in dialogue scenes. In the Joss Whedon one, it felt like the reason for that shape of the shot was so that you could see all the special effects that they'd done on Cyborg, as opposed to you could just look at Gal Gadot's arse. Um, I thought all of those were huge improvements. But carry on, sorry. Um, uh, But ultimately, I found it like... I didn't really like any of it. I didn't really like any of it more. It got rid of a lot of stuff I didn't like, and I didn't like... um, still don't like Ezra Miller. think he's awful. It made me think, actually, I don't think I could sit through a film with him in it. Um, I still think Ray Fisher as Cyborg is, is completely terrible and uh, charismaless. Um, I don't particularly like um, Aquaman. I don't really like the characters other than I quite like Batman. I don't really like the Superman character in it. Um, I... The same thing appears to be happening twice, but I don't really want to talk about that because <laughs> it's a bit of a spoiler. But um, there's just lots of it where it's longer and it has it doesn't offend me in the way that offended me before. But I didn't enjoy it on any level, really. I didn't. I didn't go like even less so than something like Superman versus Batman. There was a couple of moments you go, oh, okay, okay that's quite good. Like, that's quite a nice shot or something. But I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like... Uh, I didn't like the ending having half an hour of fake psych-out endings, none of which will come to pass, presumably. Um, and in a way, I just... What I thought, sort of, in the end, I went, well, what works economically? Not a lot more happens than happened in the... Joss, Joss Whedon version, and at the end of it, that bothered me that you went, well, actually, he really hasn't been judicial enough in his editing because there's maybe another, you know, 10 minutes or so that you could put in that wasn't in the Joss Whedon cut. But you think you could probably have done one about that length or a bit longer and made virtually the same film for me, and it wouldn't have, it would have been a bit more pacey. It's just kind of, it's not, it's not boring, but it's just kind of, it's ongoing. It feels like four hours and it doesn't feel epic in any way. It feels kind of dark and a bit like, and, and I dislike the idea that Superman comes back and now he's got a grey suit on. I didn't like any of that <laughs> stuff. Didn't like, so just lots of bits that I was just like, nah, but it didn't, In it's an improvement in in lots of ways on the Joss Whedon one because it no longer annoyed me that that sort of infuriated me. So none of it infuriated me when I was watching it. But then at the end of it, I wasn't like, Oh, I enjoyed that. I was just like, that was four hours. And that's what I just kept coming back to. Like, wow, how have they managed that? Hmm. That's how I felt. I disagree with almost everything you said, I'd say. I think um, um, what I would say... uh, My favourite film, Army of Darkness, has got three cuts, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the uh, American release, which was 82 minutes. There's the British theatrical release, which was 88 minutes. 
and then there's the director's cut, which is 92 minutes. And between each of those films, there's four, four minutes here, six minutes there. The best version is the 88 minutes. It's not too long, and it's not too short. And the pacing of the end battle is perfect. And the one-liners that they've left in, as opposed to the one-liners that they've taken out, are better, and I prefer the ending. It's a different ending. And those tiny little changes, which is four minutes, six minutes, those tiny little changes that they made there, change the entire film for me. Yeah? So when I'm watching... Now, I've got to say, I like all sorts of films, right? I'm not... I'm not what I've proven to myself this week is I'm not really that into... Despite the fact that my team are DC... I'm not really into DC movie. I don't, you know, I ju- I'm only in it really for Batman at the end of it. Um, and uh, I, I won't just, well, I guess I will mindlessly buy everything, but I know uh, I'm, uh, I won't mindlessly love everything. Mm. And I don't feel like I'm hypercritical. I just want to be entertained. I just want something, um, you know, for me, Batman is Batman the Animated. Uh, um, series from the 90s and that just nailed it to a point where I've not seen anyone nail it since mm. or before, that's just what Batman is to me right um, um, and I'm not super, I like all sorts of films right, all sorts of films and um, for this type of film by this filmmaker it is the best film in this series of films and it is. It feels very. It feels very much like, um, although there's swearing and violence in it, it feels very much like Zack Snyder's PG Watchmen, where it's got a similar tone. He's just taken your popular. He's he's taken the most popular characters in uh, Western mythology. And he's uh, and he's made a, a lot of the complaints are that it's serious, and you go, yeah, that's DC's thing, isn't it? That um, they were trying to be serious before Suicide Squad came along, and they started injecting jokes in. They were trying to be an alternative to Marvel, and I think as that, they've got the right guy to Zack Snyder. I think Zack Snyder's probably wasted on making movies. You probably need to get him to have his own TV series where he can spend hours and hours and hours and he can do 20-minute sequences on introducing minor characters and, you know, just give him, like, a series of this stuff and he would just absolutely knock it out of the park. I thought... um, uh, Just... So... And I think also yesterday, when I saw you yesterday... Um, I said, well, we've just watched, re-watched the Joss Whedon's Justice League. Mm-hmm. And you said, what a terrible mistake, because it's going to be the same film again. And I think that actually um, it was the right decision. You, you watch Joss Whedon's and the, the way that... Like, one of the things that they said to Joss Whedon when he took over was they said, make it, make it lighter, make the film lighter. And they did that. The first thing they did was they changed all of the colour palette to make it literally brighter, to brighten it up. So the skies are now not overcast and grey, but they're pink. And the fields aren't sort of um, uh, muddy and uh, and beige, but now they're bright green. And so you've got these disgusting orange, pink and bright green colour palettes on your screen for the majority of the film. And it's unwatchable. Plus, they've inserted loads of uh, green screen shots where they've done pickups of scenes 
where uh, Ben Affleck looks, um, you know, physically different from shot to shot in the Joss Whedon one because they brought him back to do reshoots that he didn't want to do months later. Uh, and the same with the same with all of them. And basically, it's the difference between Army of Darkness cuts, where they've hacked it to pieces, used alternate takes, refilmed new bits, shortened stuff down, uh, taken the air out of stuff to kind of like rush it along to the point that it's incoherent. And I think that Joss Whedon's Justice League just goes from thing to thing to thing, and then it ends, and there's no reason behind any of it. Whereas what Zack Snyder's... Um, and it feels like maybe you're watching four episodes of... A, I think the chapters help. It's cut into seven or eight chapters plus, plus an epilogue. I think that helps. It gives you, like, pause points. When we stopped it, I went for a piss or whatever, and then we had, like, a little catch-up. We were wearing headphones each so we could listen to it really loudly in my living room without disturbing my neighbours. And so we'd take our headphones off in between each bit. And we'd be like, oh, what do you think of that? Because uh, my girlfriend was forced to watch all of the films <laughs> uh, in preparation for it. And um, because basically I was going to watch this four-hour film and she was going to watch it and say it was shit. And it's just like, you can say it's shit, but you can't say it's shit with no knowledge, walking into a room and saying it's shit. I think it's going to be shit. You think it's going to be shit. I haven't enjoyed... I haven't enjoyed an entire film... One entire film of any of these films in this series, and I'm still going to watch four hours. But if you're going to come in for four hours, you've got to watch all the other films. You've got to do the homework. So she did it. We watched it. She hated all of them. I liked Wonder Woman less than I did before, which means that I pretty much hated all of them. And then um, this was just... um, At the end of it, I felt uh, really satisfied. And you're saying, like... um, yeah, that half hour at the end where he's basically setting up a franchise that he's not going to do. I think that's wrong. I think he is going to do it. I think he's basically... Um, Warner Brothers are launching this uh, TV channel to rival Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. So Warner Brothers are releasing it. They don't have a Mandalorian, so they released... Uh, and they were in lockdown. They couldn't film anything new. So they said, Zack Snyder, here's 280 million, 270 million to finish off Justice League. So he went and finished it off. And then he's put in kind of like a thing where he's like, it's a mic drop up, isn't it? He's gone, that's what I would have done. And he's walked off. He's got all the original cast back to do reshoots. He's brought in uh, Jared Leto's Joker in an attempt to tie in Suicide Squad and fix what a lot of people's problems were with that. He's, he's tried to fix things and bring their entire universe together. And then he's gone, all right, I'm finished with the DC universe now. Bye. And they're fucked. Because all they can do is go have all of the money and finish off your story. And he'll come back and he'll finish it. Like, he, he will. I wonder what, that. Like, it just yeah. felt a bit like, how can you get... What, what have you it's done? It's genius. It's genius. Because <laughs> he's basically gone, oh, OK, I'll finish off my... Uh, part of what, what they did was... Uh, Justice League was always going to be a two-part film, where yeah. the first part was what what kind of what we got um uh the first part is sort of leading into a second part whereas when joss whedon took over they said we want this film to be under two hours long and we want it to be a standalone movie we don't want to set up a sequel right so he basically just lopped it off i think in the just joss whedon version you don't know why they're bringing superman back and in this version you absolutely know why it makes sense that they're bringing him back I still don't think that the Superman coming back scene is that great. 
Uh, I don't have any particular love for the new suit or not. I don't mind either way. But um, and uh, and addressing the Ezra Miller thing, I think in the in the Joss Whedon cut, Ezra Miller is awful because he is this very annoying character. But what I would say is, in sort of his defence, they have cut out because they're trying to make it under two hours, they've cut out every personality quirk of all the other characters. Or they've added in fake ones, where Aquaman is just a surfer dude, and Ezra Miller is just a sarcastic guy. Cyborg gets the shortest job because he doesn't have a character at all, and you don't understand what he's doing. And all of his scenes have been reshot with his dad, so they all look like um, they look like an episode of Smallville. Like everything looks TV and cheap. The color palette, the costumes were designed to be lit a certain way. And there's a scene at the end of Joss Whedon's where Superman is racing the Flash outdoors in daylight, and you can see that Superman's muscles are sprayed onto his suit. And it's kind of like... like, But it's like they would have given him the suit and said, put that on, we're just going to shoot you today in a, in a field. And you kind of like go, it, it's so cheap. The Joss Whedon stuff is so cheap. You know, Zack Snyder's um, uh, wife, producer, Deborah Snyder, um, told told him not to see the Joss Whedon cut because it would be too heartbreaking to watch it. And you watch it, you go, they've hacked it to absolute pieces. You watch the Zack Snyder, it might not be perfect, which, and I guess you've got to be in the same, the right mood of it, for it. I would say watching upwards of 10 hours of shit in order to get to it is probably a bit excessive, but I think that it absolutely paid off for me because I was, I was dreading the four hour cut. And when I finally saw it, it was absolutely, it, delivered everything I wanted. And what I would say also is that this film is really... These characters, in the way that they've set them up, do not need a film each. And the, the way it's layered, and you get 20 minutes... I think the introduction to Flash is incredible. I think the introduction to Cyborg is amazing. And the way it's all layered... Those are the characters... Those are the new characters. We all know Superman. We all know Batman. Most of us know who Wonder Woman is. And she's already had her own solo film. You've got these two new characters in the Joss Whedon cut. They just show up and it's like, I don't know who they are. I don't give a shit about them. And so what they've done is they've cut out everyone else's personality quirks. And then you're left with uh, Ezra Miller, who is just doing one-liners for an entire film. which And it's awful. Whereas, in the context of Justice League, you get the feeling that he's meant to be a little bit annoying. And they act, they react to him like he's annoying. Plus they cut out all... Yeah, you know, there's a bit when he makes a joke and Cyborg just says, stop it. Like, not even like a big joke, like, hey, shut the fuck up, mate. It's like, it's literally just goes, stop it. And he goes, yeah, all right. And then he's serious, you know. Um, and they've uh, toned down Aquaman so that he's not doing, like, one-liners and he's not like this frat boy, but he's actually... They've all got characters, and it all makes sense that you can follow the story. Like, I would say the best example I've got that almost ticks all of the boxes is the bit where... Um, Wonder Woman's mum, Connie Nielsen, she is escaping from... They get The bad guys come along and get them, and they're all in this temple, and she escapes from the temple, and uh, they cave the temple in, and then she goes off with a mother box, and she's on a horse. And in the Joss Whedon version, 
They've changed all the colours to it. They've edited it down. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who's doing it. They've changed the bad guy at the last minute, so the CGI is all awful. Uh, it looks like a TV... Uh, it looks like an episode of Xena, Warrior Princess. It's like... It's fucking... It, and I like Xena, but I'm not paying 17 quid to see it, right? And so it's kind of... Uh, in the Joss Whedon version, it's, it's, it, nothing works. In the Zack Snyder version... It's well-paced. That sequence tells an actual story about, you know, why they're caving in the temple. Uh, there's a hiatus halfway through, and then there's kind of like the threat returns, and then they're on a horse. I've seen stuff in this film that I've not seen. There's a bit when a guy picks up a horse and throws it, and you go, I've not seen that in anything before. Uh, there was, I just, um, I got to the end of it, and I was just like, this is a Zack Snyder superhero film where it feels like this is what all of the other films have been leading up to and there are better films out there and uh and if i want you know i'll rewatch goodfellas and i'll probably enjoy that more but in terms of what this film i enjoyed it more than any of the marvel films and uh and i don't think any of the other dc movies are worth talking about and they should just cut their losses and go this is what we're doing now that's how I felt. I loved it. Oh, wow. For what it is. For what it is, I loved it. But also for not even what it is. I just enjoyed it as a piece of entertainment. And I felt like, I felt, I felt proud and happy for Zack Snyder that he finally got to, he's had a terrible time on this project. And I think, you know, um, and I think, Wow. Uh, and I'm not into bullying studios and all of that. And I think, you know, we wouldn't have wonderful films like Back to the Future and Terminator if um, uh, fans all got... Well, you see what happened to the Terminator franchise when fans got involved. Um, so I think that artists should be left alone to do stuff. But this is also what happens when a studio takes away an artist's vision and makes something else out of it. And I think that Joss Whedon cut is an absolute... Uh, crime. I think it's an embarrassment to take someone's work away and do that with it and then release it with their name on it and say, there you go, that's what they... It's horrible. A horrible thing to do. Um, so, there you go. That's what I thought. I loved it. I didn't love it. And that's what you go. You're either uh, a Nick fan or a Nat fan. So uh, let's have those hashtags, Team Nick, Team... <laughs> but the thing is, guys, we can disagree with things on Justice League. I still, um, I still let Nat do the show with me. So here we go. <laughs> we still, we're still friends. We still, uh, we still. I think it's really, I think it's interesting. What I was left with, which is the same thing I've always been left with, with those films, is that I would, I like, um, I, I think I could easily watch and enjoy a Zack Snyder Batman film, and I almost wish that's all he'd done. It's like I like his Batman stuff. Don't like any of the other stuff. I thought this all fit together and it was great and um yeah i loved it uh okay so we've got time for uh one bit of fan mail and then we'll get uh, uh, listen to the song oh uh, yeah yeah come on um uh brian uh, hey guys how you doing i'm just gonna do the fan mail now <clears throat> just gonna do the fan mail now hey oh hey my name's brian johnson 
Here go. Hello again, Nick, Nathaniel, Metcalf, Natalie, Brian, and Christopher. Oh, I like it when I got a shout out. Whilst listening to, I can't, I've been able to do my own voice for quite a few weeks. I think I lost it. Whilst listening to your chat with Nell Frizzell a few weeks ago, all the, it's Welsh, all, all the baby. Do you know what? We're joined today by Tom Jones. Hello again, Nick, Nathaniel. Hello, Tom. Welcome back. Natalie, Brian, and Christopher. Whilst listening to your chat, I can't Very well, any accent. Whilst listening to your chat with Nell Frizzell a few weeks ago, all the baby talk turned my already high feeling of existential dread up to 11. <laughs> my partner was due to give birth in your conversation. I can't do any accent. My partner was due to give birth in your conversation. Help really bring to the surface just how woefully unprepared I was. We've had this one. Flash forward 10 days and we sat in the maternity ward awaiting for our daughter to make her quite frankly glacial slide from the uterus to vaginal canal. This took 18 hours. I decided to fill the time with a lot of staring into the mirror and muttering to myself about the need to grow up and outlining all my inadequacies that needed to be kicked in the taint once and for all. In between these bouts of panic, I watched a few films, films, one of which was Becky. Not a great fucking movie, but oddly satisfying and helped me to start seeing some of the potential positives. A fatherhood is basically a hardcore home alone with a 13-year-old girl wreaking bloody revenge on the men who harmed her family. Starring King of Queens' Kevin James as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what's put me off watching, I have to say. Uh, not that I don't like Kevin James and King of Queens, but I don't really want to see him try and be an action hero. Uh, I've already seen Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Found it oddly reassuring to think that if I am brutally murdered by a bunch of the Nazis, my daughter may at least seek bloody retribution on behalf. Also, don't know if this will help you get through the Mandalorian, Nick. But when I watch it, all I hear when the music plays is the Alawalo themed tune. Hmm. But when I watch it, all I hear, uh, all I hear is the Alawalo themed tune. This is still Terry Wogan, right? Then, when it gets a bit boring, I just imagine he's actually on a mission to find the fallen Mandalore with the three boobies. <laughs> anyway, really sorry. The, I can't do it. Really sorry for the overly long message. It was long. Oh, so for Zack Snyder's message. If it's this from Zack Snyder, I'll absolutely, I'll absolutely believe you. Anyway, really sorry. For this overly long message, hope it hasn't put too much strain on Brian's vocal cords. Brian took a week off. All the best to you all, Tom in Tampere, Finland. P.S. Yes, mother and daughter are doing really well. And I can honestly say my daughter is a little Bobby Dazzler. Well done, Tom. There was a bit of confusion at the end because uh, normally when you write P.S. you don't need to put it in brackets. So um, uh, we talked over each other, but that's kind of your fault. Well done, Tom. Uh, Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, with your with your daughter and uh, and and uh, daughter's mother, uh, well done. That is Everyone's great. Doing well, uh, and also well done to be able to fit Becky in amongst all of that. Um, uh, I'm going to watch that. I'm not.
Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back. We, we, we uh, are live in the studio. We're not live in the studio. Uh, we're pre-recorded. Uh, we're not in the studio. Uh, I'm in my uh, office. Nathaniel's in his washroom. And we're joined... Uh, in, in, we're not in the studio. We're joined now uh, by uh, Lord of the Rings, last Hetty Wainthrop investigators actor, Dominic Monaghan. Um, hello, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I've just driven to the other side of Los Angeles to have a COVID test, and then I've driven back. So my day started like three hours ago, which is a lot of fun. So what time is it? It's coming up to... It's just gone nine o'clock in the morning. So I left my house just before seven, and I got back just before nine. Good times. Los Angeles is a huge city. <laughs> yes. You've had a COVID test, your... Dominic. I've just had my first jab. I've got a bit oh, of you. AstraZeneca you. rushing through me right now. Nice. I am, unfortunately, in the very centre, the very hub of international anti-vaccine culture. It actually stems oh, really? out of Santa Monica in Los Angeles. There's a, there's a massive narrative here that, um, that vaccines, certain types of vaccines are linked to certain types of conditions. Um, so... I have to hear a lot of that stuff. And I've never had, I've never spent a year where I've done this more. Mm. Sure. Just like, I'm not, I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and walk in the other direction. You know? Yeah. Were you living in uh, Los Angeles anyway uh, uh, before? I mean, how has lockdown worked? And I mean, obviously, you, do, you, do you still have connections in England? I, I do, of course, uh, coming from Manchester. Manchester. <laughs> um, I've been living in LA now for about 15 years. I think this is actually my 15th year, but parents from Manchester, extended family from Manchester, my parents spend a lot of time in Spain now, as does my brother. But as a big Manchester United fan, I'm in Manchester quite a lot. All of my friends from school and college still are around the north of England. I obviously have friends in, in London as well. So, yeah, I, I am in England quite a bit. Unfortunately, because of the year that we've all had, I've been in my house all year, which is which has never happened. I'm usually away for usually six to nine months of the year. Um, so, is that how, so is that sort of how this uh, project, uh, the Kindling Hour, kind of came about? Do you mean the, the, the kind of uh, constraints of COVID and the fact that I'm stuck yeah. in that? I, I, I yeah. think so. I'm not sure. You'd have to probably ask the producers. I, I play games. I like playing games um, on my computer, but also board games and tabletop games and stuff like that. I'm, I've always been interested in kind of the new technologies coming into my business. I wrote and produced a virtual reality game a couple of uh, years ago, which we just shot the, the second episode of. So I think I'm just invested in these type of stories because I always felt like if you're not doing them, you're being left behind, you know, and I don't want yeah. to be left behind. Well, Nick and I have got it booked in to do the Kidding Hour on Sunday, but we initially right. thought we were going to do this next week. And one of the reasons I was super keen to do it was because I was trying to get my head around exactly how it worked. It's like, so what happens? What's it like? What's it not? So it's like immersive theatre, and it's done by guys, I think, who used to be in 
punch drunk, right? So it is that kind of thing where normally in, in normal times, it would be the kind of thing you would go into a space and you would interact with the people who are in that space. But this is a sort of virtual version of that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously just a gun for hire that they brought in very generously to, you know, be, be in some moments in the piece. So I think asking the, the creators, producers of the piece, you might get a better answer. But the way that I've described it to people is that it's a self-contained escape room in your computer. So you're trying to solve clues. You're trying to work out, is that a significant clue? Is that indeed a clue? Do I, should I hold on to that information? Is that a wild goose chase? Is that a red herring? It's brilliant. To be completely, totally honest with you guys, I've not been able to play it. I've read <laughs> it, and, and I know what happens in, in the, the experience because I'm obviously involved in it. But I've recently kind of got busy, and the producers of the, of the piece said, can, can you please play it? And I said, I, I can't play it until maybe this weekend. So I'm hoping this weekend <laughs> I'll be playing it alongside with you guys, and we'll see who solves it first. <laughs> I like the idea that you'll probably have to interact with yourself in some way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know those things that I did, but there's obviously a whole bunch. It's a, it's a trilogy of, of stories, really. Um, it's brilliant. I mean, they do they do do crazy things, or it seems like they do crazy things to your computer, to the screen of your computer, to what seems to be the inner workings of your computer. So hopefully, you guys are going to take it out. Okay. Okay. So, who, who do you play a character in it? Is it is it that you've got? I know. You know what? I get myself in trouble so much in my business by producers saying, "Please don't say that. Please don't say that." We know okay. you're excited, but please don't say it. So, I I'll say what I can say, which is, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm involved in it both in a voice fashion and also in kind of an in person interaction that you have and. I'm nervous to say any more because this is a very spoilerific, you know, kind of cliffhanger experience for people. So I'll, I'll do this, as we've been doing all year. All right. Well, what I'll say then, we'll so, get out of the way, and we'll say that the Kindling Hour, which is a production from Swamp Motel, is available now, and you can research it and buy your tickets at thekindlinghour.com. That feels like a good... You've nailed it. Great. Perfect. Perfect. Um, I, uh, I spoke to a friend of mine, SD, and I know he's a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so I thought, what would you ask Dominic Monaghan? I thought, what would you ask? And the question he came up with, he said, Lord of the Rings is a kind of film where all the fans know all the lines and they quote them and they become memes, and you have a line in it or a meme featuring you from that series of films that is the one where you go, that's my one. That's my big line. Do you have, what's your what's the moment you think about? An iconic moment in, in the entire trilogy, or the entire in the, trilogy? Yeah. Well, you know, I spend a, I spend a huge amount of time on camera with Billy Boyd, and I spend a lot of time with Billy Boyd in person. Sometimes the two of us get confused for each other. So um, I do get on the streets a lot. I do get this. My friend is a pint. I'm not sure if you remember that moment with the <laughs> Hobbits suddenly find himself in a pub and he's never been served pints before because he's drinking half pints in the shire. So I get this, my friend, is a pint a lot. I get, have you had second breakfast a lot? Now, obviously, I don't say second breakfast, but I'm in the scene 
with, with <laughs> Billy. So I guess it kind of works. Sometimes they confuse the two. There's, there's, uh, there's questions about cave trolls quite a bit. But also, I get stuff. We all get the same. I get stuff with Elijah. You know, people say, do you have the ring on you? And I say, that's not me. That's the other guy. <laughs> all, the, all the hobbits are kind of the same. The next thing that I'm doing after this, which is the reason why at some point I have to hop it, is all four hobbits are doing a Zoom with Stephen Colbert, who's a talk show host over here in America, to commemorate the 20-year <clears throat> anniversary of Lord of the Rings. And they're doing screenings in the cinema. So we're going to introduce some screenings in the cinema, which will be a great... Oh, right. Because, so that's the thing that's, go, that's going alongside Alamo Draft House. Uh, exactly. for, you've, got, you've got three weeks of... Tw- 20 years! Has it really been 20 years? No, if that makes you feel old, think how old it makes me I mean, yeah, that, that was my question. I mean, I mean, how how do you feel the time has passed? <laughs> I mean, everything's happened in between it, right? I mean, twenty years—it's it's a life, you know. So, your failures and triumphs are all in equal measure, you know. But if someone were to say to me, without me knowing the facts, you know, guess how long it's been since the first film came out? I would say fifteen years maximum. I wouldn't have said twenty. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it's crazy, and, and also, I'm lucky enough to be involved in, in a project that it seems, as each subsequent year goes by, it, it builds on its in, on its gravitas in some way. You know, it has a life of its own. Mm. How, so, how how old were you when uh, when you when you first did it? Then I was 23, and I'm now 43. I always like it when there's guests that are older than me. So that, that's, that's, <laughs> you've made me feel. I was forty this year, so I've kind of like, I feel you like. Don't day over sixty-two. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, it's good. It's good to know that you're. That, yeah. That what year did you start there. filming them? Was that ninety-nine? I flew out to New Zealand in kind of late September, early October of ninety-nine. And we started filming, I think, late 99 or early 2000. I think. I'm not entirely sure of the dates of that. So, but, okay, so just go back a little bit way before that. So what were you doing at the time that you got the... So did, did you audition for Peter Jackson or uh, did you get a phone call and they said that they're interested in you, they've seen something that you're in? But what were you, what were you up to at that time uh, before Lord of the Rings happened to you? Well, I'd finished four series of of the iconic TV show, Hetty Wayne Book Investigates. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I, was, I was doing a, a kind of mini-series with John Thor, the late and fantastic John Thor, in France, called Monsignor Renard, which is the story of... I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, a priest trying to maintain a little bit of, uh, of uh, control over a village that gets taken over by Nazis in the Second World War. And, you know, a little... Sunday afternoon drama with, with John Thor. I was doing that. A couple of months before that, I had done a play in London um, that the casting directors of Lord of the Rings came to see, and they liked the play, and they spoke to me in the bar afterwards. Yes, Nick. Did, did, did you know that they were coming in before... No. no so I, they sort of I, skulked in the darkness like cowards, judging yeah, you. Yeah. You know what, Nick? I, I was so naive back in the day, and I think we, we're never aware of our naivety, right? So I might, I might have 
I, I definitely do have blind spots now that I'm not aware of. I'm pretty sure that my agent would have said to me, the Hubbards, who are the biggie, biggest casting directors in the world, are coming to see your play. And at the time, I was 21, 22, and I would have gone, oh, great, whatever, I don't give a shit. And then, that, could that happen anyway? Could that happen anyway? Do you get those things anyway? Like, this is really important. Me and Nick come from a stand-up background, and so if you're doing a show like in Edinburgh, before you're established, you often have people, agents or PR or something, saying, there's someone really important in. And you go, well, don't tell me that. I don't want to. So you, to the most part, you want to get it out of your head. You don't want to think about anything. It's like, well, I, I, I'm not going to do a different show, am I? Yeah. No, I, w- I was lucky enough to do a play that was were, that was shortlisted in time out as being one of the five best plays in London in that month. Excuse mm. me. So every casting director in London was going to that play. And I just didn't. I, I, I was I was too young and too wet behind the ears to know what that meant. Obviously, my, what my agent was trying to say to me was, do a good performance, stay sober in the bar afterwards, and if someone approaches you, work the room a little bit. And I, I, hopefully I did a good enough performance because the hobbies liked it. But I, I was still getting mullered in the bar afterwards. And <laughs> I think, I think may, maybe, who knows, maybe they like that. Maybe they like the slight naturalistic element of it. So we spoke, and John Hubbard said to me in the bar, we're going to be casting Lord of the Rings in the next couple of months. We'd love you to come in. And I said, oh, brilliant, fantastic. Didn't think anything of it. Continued doing the play. I actually got hit on a, on a tube. I was, just, I was a skinhead in the play. wasn't obviously a skinhead in real life. And I got hit on the tube. Someone was, someone was um, exiting a train that I was on, and I was sat very close, the closest seat to the exit door. And as the doors opened for this guy to leave, for some reason, he punched me in the face. So I had like a, I didn't have a black eye, but I had like a yellowy, purpley eye. And I went in to read for Bilbo Baggins, uh, sorry, to uh, read for Mary, which was a generic read of Frodo Baggins. And I'm, and I'm sure I probably would have been hung over at that point because in my early 20s, I was, I was boozing. And uh, a black eye, did my thing, didn't think anything of it. Went to France to do this show with uh, John Thor after a second audition, follow-up audition. And my agent called me and said, I had, a, I had like a week left on that show in France. He said, directly after this, you might need to fly to Los Angeles, which is where I'd never been before, to uh, chat with Peter Jackson at length, or possibly fly to New Zealand, all off your own back, all off your own money. But he said, I would, I would uh, advise you to do it because, you know, there's a chance that you might get a part. And I said, okay, great, keep me posted. And then I think two days later, he called me up and said, you don't need to go anywhere, you just offered me the part. So I said, woohoo. Wow. So you didn't even need to go to Los Angeles? No, they, they were kind of, I think, whittling down roles. They'd already cast Billy Boyd at that point. He was the first person cast in Lord of the Rings, which he always tells me about, which is super <laughs> um, And I think they had started to create this look you know, if we have Billy Boyd and then we have Elijah Wood, we need someone kind of around about the same height and we're thinking of a Sean Astin and we thought, I looked good and I got caught. But they never got you all in the room together and did sort of like a chemistry test or anything like that? No. That's no. crazy. So based on the audition that you had with the black eye, that's the one that got you the part? That, yeah, based on that initial audition, I think, was, was yeah. the thing that got me the part. And then a couple of weeks later, I went back in and did, a, did an extended 
audition, more reads, more scenes to do. But I think the first audition was the thing that got me off the finish line. Yeah. So what, it's something I'd never occurred to me about the world of acting is that thing where they could say, you need to fly out to Los Angeles and New Zealand with your own money. And you kind of think, if you're an actor then, although, you know, you were successful when you were in TV series, if you weren't doing that and you were skint, like, how does that work? Are people just having to find money to off their... I assume that was always something that a studio would pay for or something. And you would assume that maybe a, a, a big studio like New Line, the big trilogy of movies like Lord of the Rings, might make an exception and pay for it. But on the contrary, it, it was not like that at all. But Peter Jackson always described Lord of the Rings as the biggest independent film of all time because, you know, we shot it in New Zealand and, and there were no studio heads around. We weren't bothered by anyone. But, you know, in my, in my line of business, maybe in all lines of business, I, I've always subscribed to the idea that, you know, you invest in yourself and spend money on on yourself in that regard. So if my agent had said you need to fly to New Zealand, I would have been hurt because I didn't have that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still would have done it. Yeah. And so, like, the, the sort of legend of it all is that you all go there and you're there for... I know you make these this sort of trilogy of movies. How much time are you there in one concentrated period of time? Yeah, we're there for just under two years. Uh, well, obviously, we had a Christmas break. Some people stayed in New Zealand, some people went to Thailand, some people went to Australia. I went back to England um, and then came back. Aside from that, we were all together, initially shooting the first film, but by the time we got to kind of halfway through the first film, we were bringing in the second film, and by the time we got halfway through the second film, we were doing the third film and the second film and the first film. So it, it all eventually kind of bled into each other. And... Um, Started with, I always say, I think this is one of the shrewdest things that Peter Jackson did, whether it was intentional or not. He started with the four hobbits, filming together, shooting together for a few weeks. And then he brought in members of the fellowship. So we would bring in Gandalf for four days and then Ian would go off. And then he'd bring in John Rhys-Davis and, and Vigo and Orlando. And then he'd bring in Kate Blanchett. And it was almost as if he's creating this kind of nucleus the kind of heart, the emotional core, and then he bring in the physicality and the wisdom and the speed and the stealth. I, I think he did it on purpose, but Pete would never admit to that, that kind of uh, shrewdness and smartness. You know? <laughs> well, there's a lot of that, isn't there, whether it's shrewdness or accidental um, sort of happenstance that do, does it. But the idea that you're all being flown out to New Zealand and you're all together, you're automatically kind of... It, in some ways, it's great, but it's also makes sense that you would sort of become this gang in real life and in like and on screen that you seem to have this there was all those stories about you all getting tattoos and matching tattoos and right. that you're both for such a long period of time you don't get films that shoot for two years but of course no. you're all coming to do this one thing that by the end of it of course you're sort of bound by this adventure essentially for life anyway yeah, we are. We are all we are all bound into this fellowship, whether we like it or not. It's like we all went to university together, you know. Yes, so obviously yeah, in, yeah. in that time, in that two-year time, you have fights, you have falling outs, you have great moments, you have good nights out, you have bad nights out, you have you share girlfriends and all that kind of stuff that, that, that guys do. I mean, we were all single apart from Sean Astin, who was married, and we all became surrogate uncles to his daughter but you know myself elijah billy boyd vigo sean bean orlando 
whoever else, I can't remember. We're all single. We're all single out and about in Wellington. So you can imagine that that there was there was some stories associated with that, you know, um, and very much a bonding experience. And that was something that... I also, Wellington isn't a massive place, is it? No, it's not. It's not at all. And there's probably, <laughs> at the time when we were there, there was probably three or four places that everyone went to, you know. Um, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily think that Pete and his team encouraged us going out and being rambunctious, but they certainly didn't dissuade us from spending as much time with each other as possible. And Pete used to love the stories of us, you know, crawling back home at three in the morning or, or whatever, you know, uh, driving out and doing bungee jumps together or skydiving. He used to love that stuff. Did you did you know who Peter Jackson was before you signed on to this? Um, I educated myself very quickly, but to be honest, I, I didn't. I'd seen the Frighteners, but I didn't know that he was Peter Jackson. And then the next thing that I watched was Heavenly Creatures, which obviously you know put him on the map in a significant way. I have to admit that I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not the most. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of kind of schlock B horror stuff. You know. Brain dead and bad taste and, and things like that are not at the top of my list. I don't I don't really go in for horror nowadays anyway. I don't really go in for those handmade, you know, uh, on the uh, like camera on the shoulder, rough and ready films. Obviously, what Pete did was was fantastic, and there are exceptions in all of those genres which love. So I educated myself very quickly, but it was probably between the frighteners and heavenly creatures that made me realise, oh, you know. This, this guy's exceptionally talented. Um, if you were on coming back and doing one of your legendary nights out and coming back at three in the morning, what was it then like for you all having to go into makeup and uh, have lots of glue and uh, various kind of wigs and uh, feet put on you? Was it a kind of horrific, uh, sweaty kind of uh, early mornings? I mean, it's it's horrific at the best of times, and and don't get me wrong, I, you know, I wasn't like an alcoholic or a mess. It, it's making me sound like I was a complete on show back in the day. I wasn't. I just was able to enjoy a, a, a few glasses of wine at dinner or a few right. beers after dinner, and it not bother me. I wouldn't dream of doing that nowadays. There's no there's no situation where I would drink the night before a day of work. Now I just I just wouldn't do it, you know. Can't, I can't handle it like I used to when I was in my 20s. But as we all know, in our 20s, you know, you can eat anything. You can play two hours of football with your mates in the park. Not a big deal. Get three hours of sleep, drive to London, you know. So the thing about the, the prosthetics, and the hobbits were in first, and we were out like We had hair, wigs, and feet. No one else had the same amount of prosthetics as us, apart from John Rhys-Davis. But John Rhys-Davis didn't have feet. He only, he only had, you know, prosthetics and, and hair. So we were usually, a normal call for us was probably 10 past 5, 5.15, 5.20, and then we'd work throughout the day, and then we'd wrap, but it would take us probably an hour to get our feet and wigs and ear off, and, and you know, they're putting them on with glue, and they take them off with alcohol. So if you've got alcohol in your system going in, the prosthetics don't stick to your ears or to your hairline or to your feet. So... You know, there were, there were times where they would say to us, you know, on a Monday morning after a, a big Sunday night out, they would say to the Hobbits, you guys need to stop, um, you know, having big nights out on a Sunday because you're making our jobs harder. So you mentioned the feet a few times. Were the feet really problematic then? The feet were, you know, delicate, 
obviously geared to our particular feet. So I couldn't wear Elijah's feet and he couldn't wear mine. Um, we all had our own personal feet. Very delicate. They weren't they weren't in any way tough. So if you stood on a on a rock or a stick, you would you would feel it. And lots of times those things would go through our feet. And, and if we could handle it, okay. But if, if, if it ruined the feet, you'd have to go through another hour of getting them done. Sean Astin like cut his feet up. I cut my feet up a few times. So you know they were they were annoying. And there were days very often there were days where they put us in feet and they wouldn't use us. I think I think. Sean Aston kept account of it to see if it could be in some way compensated, but it, it didn't get too much uh, joy with that. <laughs> but so you were basically, you had bare feet with prosthetics put on your feet? Correct. Uh, and w- would that include days where they knew that your feet weren't even going to be in shot? Yeah, because it's easier for the hair and makeup department just to cover themselves by saying, look, we'll put you in feet in case of the big yeah. wide shift of features. And we would say, but this is a close-up of my eyes and they can't feature my feet because it's only, but, well, we'll just put you in feet anyway. And it used to drive Sean Aston mad. For me, I wasn't that bothered. I would just, we used to listen to music for that couple of hours, put music on. You'd have to stand up to get your feet on. So you stood up for two hours with, you, with one foot in the air while we put one on and then another foot in the air. While on. But we'd all be together. So we'd listen to music, we'd have fun. I'd write in my diary. I kept like 15 diaries while I was making Lord of the Rings. So I would just write in my diary. Have you ever published those? Are they? No, but um, we're in the process of kind of getting a podcast together, um, myself and Billy Boyd. And I think one of the sections might be Don's diary. Although I was reading the other day and I said to Billy, there's, there's a lot here that I can't, that I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, you talk about like John Thor before, and you've had that, and then, like even like, I mean, we kind of mentioned like Hetty Wenthrop, but you think Patricia Outledge, John Thor, I mean, nothing to be sniffed at. I mean, these are kind of incredible, kind of iconic actors, and especially Lord of the Rings. You've got people now like Ian Holm and Christopher Lee who have since kind of passed away. What are your memories of these kind of actors who, who of course, when you're working with them, are just actors, but now you know they've kind of were then and have gone on to become kind of legends, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, great teachers. I owe, I owe a, a huge amount to Patricia Routledge, especially. I mean, she was obviously, she became famous for people of theorists and to a lesser extent, Hetty Wainthrop, but she's a phenomenal theatre yeah. actor in her own right. And mm-hmm. uh, someone, who I, someone who I owe a lot. I learned a massive amount from her. Um, she was quite strict with me for good reason. I was 18 at the time. I think she was in her late 60s. So I wanted to do my job and rap early and go home and have room service. And, you know, she wanted to do the best job on set. So she taught me a, a massive amount about responsibilities as an actor, how you're supposed to approach things, learning your lines, being available for other actors, rehearsal time, all that kind of stuff. She was fantastic. And, uh, and I had a great time with her and, uh, you know, very much enjoyed her company. And to be honest, for someone in her late 60s to be as patient as she was with someone in his teens, who I'm sure was a fucking nightmare at the time, you know, I mean, I, we had completely different ideas as to how we wanted to spend our day. So she was, she was brilliant and uh, I had a huge amount of love for her. Uh, John Thor was the same. Unfortunately, John Thor was coming towards the end of his life and I think he knew it. He was quite ill. It was the last job that he did. And um, 
still smoking like a chimney, but we did, we had a day where I was in a prison cell with him and it was just he and I, and he was basically saying to me, your appeal to stay alive has not been successful and you're going to die. And uh, it was it was about three quarters of the day you're in this prison cell. And he was just incredibly generous with advice and help. And he clearly wanted me to do the best scene that I could do. And he gave me a lot of tips and advice, which I love. So again, another another great teacher. And these teachers that you have in your life who who give advice so freely and, and so openly, I, I think it stays with you forever, you know. Um, Christopher Lee was, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't do a huge amount of work with Christopher Lee, but I did drive into work with him quite often. I remember the first day that he got picked up from work, they picked me up first at five, and we picked Christopher Lee up at ten past five. This is the first time I met him. He got in the front seat, like six foot seven Christopher Lee or something like that, incredibly tall man. And I was obviously like, oh my goodness, it's Christopher Lee. So I, I said, um, good morning, Christopher. I'm, I'm Dominic. I play one of the hobbits in the film. How are you? And he turned around to me and said, I have never been called to work this early in my entire life. And I thought, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and uh, not say anything because he doesn't seem like he's in the greatest mood. But he was, he was, apart from that, always in a fantastic mood. He actually took a ballpoint pen, a big ballpoint pen, in front of Elijah and I. We were on set and he was talking to us. And he said, can I show you something? And we said, yeah, it was great. Took a ballpoint pen and threw it into a tree, and it stuck into a tree like a knife. <laughs> <laughs> and Elijah and I were just like, what just happened? Because we were aware he was in the Special Forces in the Second World War. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Very, very physically capable man. So he, he, he did some phenomenal things. And, uh, I mean, obviously, Ian McKellen, to be honest, Ian McKellen was much more of a peer with us. Ian McKellen was out with us at night, having fun, you know, telling stories, a brilliant storyteller, you know, again, very generous with his time and, and incredibly much more experienced than us and would help us out if we needed to. But I think Ian very much wanted to be part of the gang. So he, he took on board much more of a body type uh, vibe than some of these more teacherly type roles. And Ian Holm, I mean, I was absolutely devastated last year. I know we all had an awful year last year for, for so, so many different reasons. I think it, it kind of, in a way, came to a head for me when, when Ian Holm died and I was, I was like hysterical in my house for a couple of days, calling my friends and family, just blobbing on the phone. I didn't know the man very well. We obviously spent some time together um, and, you know, we, we, we casually kept in touch over the years, but he was, he was about as brilliant an actor and, and a man as I've, as I've had a chance to spend time on set with. And his... His passing was just—it's just devastating. You know? Yeah. Um, and I was reading as well that, that so you'd gone from Hetty Winthrop. Had you done that? You were in the sixth form or something, weren't you? But when you got that, yeah, I was. Yeah. So you'd gone from that to uh, um, uh, Lord of the Rings, um, and then. Afterwards, I remember I read that when you're in Lost, or just before you're in Lost, that that character Charlie in Lost was meant to be a much older character, but you yeah. convinced them to change it to be someone who's much younger, someone in their twenties, and that you said that it sort of works better because you felt at the time that you were you were kind of washed up, right? You felt like wouldn't it be better if? Whereas for viewers, it felt like you had gone from 
um, Hetty Wenthrop to Lord of the Rings to Lost. It felt that like you'd gone to these big shows, but for you, like, what was that time in between? Did you feel like... Just to add on, I mean, what was the difference between you finishing filming Lord of the Rings and then the last film being released? We finished principal photography on Lord of the Rings at the end of 2000, and then the last film came out at the end of 2003. Um, But we were back in New Zealand every subsequent year, so 2001, 2002, 2003, we went back to New Zealand for like six to eight weeks for, you know, incidental pickup shots and filming. So we were always kind of involved with those things as as the film Mm -hmm. came out. Does that answer your question, but the bulk of it would have been finished like a few years before yeah, the final yeah. the final release. Yeah. Um, and then you went off to do Lost. Yeah, so I... We were... The Four Hobbits got invited to the Academy Awards the year that Return of the King were nominated for 13 and won 13, which I don't think has ever been done before, which was, which was incredible. And about... Five days before, I had met J.J. Abrams, Damon Lindelof, and Brian Burke, who were putting together this Lost show. And I had had, I'd gone to, they have these, it sounds bizarre, but they have these things called gifting suites in L.A. around the awards season, which is basically like a hotel floor. And in each room, they just give you free stuff. It's (laughs) weird, but it just happens. And in one of these rooms, they were giving out manicures, and I went in, and but I didn't know it was a manicure room. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have gone in. Not that I, not that I haven't taken my nails over the years. I have, but I, it wasn't at the top of my list. But I went in. And I felt embarrassed that I'm walking into this room and was going to say no. So instead, I said to these guys, "Well, can you just paint black in the finger beds of my nails here, which is actually the finger nails that I'm wearing at the Academy Awards?" But when I went to meet JJ and Bertie and Ben uh, Lindelof. I had these fingernails and JJ spotted them and he said, those, those fingernails are great for, for the idea of the character. And I said, okay. And at that point, it was confusing to me because the character was kind of like Robert Plant. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. was like long kind of Jesus-like hair, late, late 40s, early 50s. I was in my mid-20s at the time. And he'd been there and done that. And he'd had a string of hits, 10, 15 hits, He's a multi-millionaire. He's got a house in London, a house in LA. And he's just kind of jaded. So when I spoke to you guys, I said, well, if, if that's the part you want me to play, is it not more fascinating that, that this character, Charlie, has had like a taste of fame? He's had a one-hit wonder and then everything's been taken away from him. And, uh, and I didn't know how much it resonated. And then I left. And, and by the time I came back, the character was younger and... Uh, had black underneath the beds of his fingernails. So I thought, oh, I might be onto something. But was that was that something how you was that how you felt at the time then? Did you feel um, like Well I was as actors you're always going through ebbs and flows. And I think, you know, I was much more insecure about my career in my in my teens and in my twenties than I am now. Not not that I don't have insecurities about my career. I think maybe we all do, I'm not sure. But um I had watched Orlando finish Lord of the Rings and get Pirates of the Caribbean. I had watched well, Elijah finish Lord of the Rings and go off and do Sin City and different movies. Billy was working with Pizza Weir and Russell Crowe on Master and Commander. Vigo was 
doing Hidalgo. I just wasn't working. I, I couldn't get a job, you know. Um, and I was nervous that maybe I was going to be the guy out of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where people would say, where are they now? I would be at the bottom of the dustbin and they'd say, well, he's, you know, he ends up, you know, going back to school and studying drama type thing. So I think I was, I think I did feel a little out of, out of the loop and um, insecure about stuff. But I mean, if I'd have been working, I couldn't have met JJ and Damon and I couldn't have done Lost and Lost ended up being six years of, of one of the biggest TV shows in the world. Yeah. You, know? you just don't it, know. It didn't feel like that at all. As I just thought it was interesting that your own sort of perspective on it, whereas I remember seeing you in Lost and, and, and it felt like, you know, Lord of the Rings felt like it was still very much in the consciousness and... Um, lost seemed like another huge thing. And I just thought that was interesting because I don't think that was a perception the public had at all. It was like really, you were riding high, you know? Yeah, it's strange, right? Because in my in my career, people only tend to talk about the big things. You know, we talked about Eddie Wainsworth, which was in some way big for me because it was how I started. Lord of the Rings, Lost, you know, people talk about the big things. But in between Lost and Lord of the Rings, I probably made five films that no one's seen. In between Hetty Wainsworth and Lord Rings, I was probably in two or three films that no one's seen. So I'm aware of like, oh, I've done three things that no one likes and, uh, and it's not been successful. But then, you know, if you come back three years later in a massive hit, people just think, oh, he's been around forever. But, you know, but, but people forget also at the time that Lord of the Rings was a massive gamble and the fact that, uh, you know, people... I think I remember at the time that uh, it, they were saying, are oh, they going to make all three of them together? And there's no kind of, like, allowance to see if the first one is successful, if there's any appetite for that, all right, we'll make the next two. It was like, no, we're going to make them all three at the same time. So if the first one flops, then you're all fucked, weren't you? Yeah. Um, and so in a way, it's kind of, you, you can't, even something with Lord of the Rings, you can't know while you're making it that it's going to be a hit. And and with Lost, it's kind of like you can't know when you're making the first series that it's going to kind of take off and it's going to run on and on and on. So yeah, you, you just it's all to, a bit of a gamble. It is all a gamble, but I guess, you know, maybe maybe life is, is that way. I mean, I just have to make decisions on the things that I know, you know, the kind of known knowns, because obviously there's a bunch of unknowns. And the, the things that you know with those projects are when I read the Lord of the Rings script, I thought, oh, this script is incredible. And the director, you know, is someone who's on the map. And it was the same with Lost. The pilot script on Lost is easily the best pilot script I've ever read. And J.J. Abrams was a, was a phenomenon, you know. So those are the known knowns. But, you know, Peter Jackson and J.J., even in, even in their height of their powers and their pomp, have made films that really haven't resonated, you know. So they don't know either, you know. So you, you just have to gamble on yourself. What are some of the, I mean, with a production that is essentially, it's three films that you film filming all at once that last for two years and then going on to work, with early mornings as well, um, and then going on to do something like Lost, uh, which I've done TV, so I know there's loads of early mornings in that, uh, and I think the longest shoot I've done was five and a half months, and that felt like, for TV, that felt like it was never-ending. What are some of the differences that you found between making three films all at once and then making a continuous series like Lost? 
I mean, rings, rings felt like it was never ending. I mean, we, you know, we shot for two consecutive years and then we went back for, for reshoots that you could shoot an entire movie. And we, we would go back for like eight weeks of reshoots. You could shoot an entire movie in eight weeks, you know? So mm. we, we felt like it was like Groundhog Day. We were on set all the time. Um, the thing with rings is I knew what happened to Mary. You know, I knew that he started in the Shire and wanted to just stay in the Shire and have fun with his friends and, and live out his days there and found himself in a war and became ruined by that war and survived ultimately. I knew that journey. I didn't know what happened with Charlie. So all I could do with Charlie was stay present in what they'd given me to do on that particular week, stay open to any potential because I didn't know if he would find drugs again or find a guitar or fall in love or fall off a cliff. So, so it's, that's, that's the difference in, in, an act, in an actor's journey with that. But in terms of, you know, early mornings and being on set and the regularity of work, I found that my, my skill set became extremely sharpened. So I, you know, after a year or so of filming Rings, you could be given rewrites of pages that were seven or eight pages. And they say, we're doing this after lunch. And you go, yeah, okay, give me 15 minutes and I'll try and get my head around it, you know. Nowadays, if they gave me that and said, we're doing this after lunch, you know, I'd, I'd need to like lie down for a little bit and compose myself. But as, as a youngster and, and having done it for such a significant amount of time, you, you just, your, your skills just get home. You know, it's a great learning culture. That's interesting as well. Like, uh, but I guess, like you were saying, when you were in Lost, that approach to acting is just living, isn't it? Like none of us know what's around the corner. So if you're able to kind of, play the role in the moment it's just like essentially being alive um, and i think they were probably looking at us on a week by week basis and seeing oh they, those guys seem to have a nice chemistry we'll write more for those guys or i've heard that those guys are spending a lot of time with each other those guys are, are supposed to be friends off, off canvas so we'll put those guys together or you know dom likes animals so we'll do some stuff with animals or dom's enjoying playing the guitar so we'll do some more guitar so i think they were constantly watching our actual lives and writing and it was one of those series where you could have major characters seem to be written out for the audience who would just, you know, would be in it one minute and then not the next. Did you know, or so you had kind of long contracts or was there always that idea that I don't know how long I'm in this show for? I think, you know, I could be written out any moment. I don't know what they're, where it's going or. Yeah, it was a show like that. You know, it's not, it's a show on an island where there's, where there is jeopardy every single day. So they can kill anyone they want. It's, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like Coronation Street where, you know, unless something, you know, tragic happens, you, you're going to be working, you know. So um, I spoke to Damon Lindelof, who ultimately became the person who exec produced and wrote the show. And I had said to him right from the start, if you leave the show, let me, like, write me out with you. I'll be the, you can, you can, you can go through the process of, of your, extracting yourself from the show by extracting me from the show and tell your story by doing that. I was really into that idea. And he said, okay, great. I'll keep that in mind. By the time we got to midway through season three, he said to me, because I had become a little bit frustrated with kind of being the babysitter and holding the baby or, you know, walking the dog down the beach in the show. And he said to me, look, I, I think I've found a great way to write for you this season, but it involves your exit. 
And I said, well, let's do it because I, there's no other way of me getting as good a crack of the whip. And I didn't want to be one of the characters that died in the last episode with another seven or eight characters. I wanted to have my own story. And ultimately, that's that's what I was looking at to, mm. to do. It's interesting you're saying that character was a much more kind of older rock star because it was, I guess, given someone your age, it kind of made much more sense. You're from Manchester that it would be, in reality, you would be much more in that Britpop era anyway, right? It would have felt like you you fit that mo uh, that that role much better, and it felt more modern in that way. I think, in a way, yeah. otherwise, you've seen that character before. You've seen people do old kind of seventies, eighties rock stars in things. It's almost like a cliche, but I think. It's sort of a, it was a clever decision and a smart decision in a way because it feels suddenly more modern and something like, oh, we haven't seen this. And to see that, I think, in the UK, to see that kind of British, more modern kind of British rock star represented in an American show, it seems it was sort of like something, oh, we haven't seen this before, like in fiction, you know, you haven't seen someone of that generation or a similar yeah, generation I mean, to yourself. Britpop. Britpop was absolutely the biggest musical movement for me in my life and probably it will end up being that. I was, I was 17 when Oasis hit in Manchester, where I'm from. The biggest band in the world came out of Manchester. You know, I was, I was at the Christmas party for my college singing whatever by Oasis and, and learned to play and sing supersonic pulp and blur and you know, Shed Seven and Ocean Colour Scene and all these bands were absolutely ginormous to me. I, I used to go to the Elizabethan pub and for about three or four weeks, Liam Gallagher used to come to that pub as well. I remember sitting on a wall with Liam Gallagher saying to him that my favourite song that they'd made at that point was Rocking Chair, which was on the B-side of uh, Acquiesce. And he was like, he went, oh yeah, how does that one go again? And I was like, well, I'm not going to sing it for you. Do you know what I mean? You're the, you're the singer in the band. I'm going to sing your song to you. And he was laughing. And he ended up, like, singing this, this rocking chair song, Acapella, for me and my mates. And walking home that night thinking, I am at, I'm 17 years old and we are in the, we are the epicenter of world music. That's what it felt like. So very, very important time for me and, and formative. And... Uh, I feel so lucky to, to have been in England and, and to obviously have been in Manchester. Incredible. Do you think that might have also given you, sort of spurred you on? If you're 17, that's the time you're in the sixth form when you're just about to go on, go on to do things like Hetty Wenthrop. Was it important to you to see someone from your hometown represented in, in on the kind of world stage that probably might have spurred you on to go, well, I can do that? It was, but I was a little, I was a little embarrassed at the time because, like, Liam and Noel were so cool and Damon Alburn was so cool and Jarvis Cocker and Ian Brown and the Stone Roses were so cool. And as a youth, you, you always want to be cool. I identified with the idea of being cool. Hetty Wainthrop, however way you slice it, was not cool. Do you know what I mean? It paid the rent. Sure. And I learned a lot and I was happy that I did it and it was the BBC and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't cool. So I was a little sheepish. I would walk into pods or or clubs in Manchester, and people were like, ah, there's that fucking geek from Hetty Wainthrop. Like, no, I wanted to be Liam, I wanted to be Noel, you know. So I, I, maybe that, in its essence, spurred me on. The idea of, yeah. like, oh, you don't think I'm cool, so I'm going to try and show you that, that I am cool, you know. But um, it, was, it was incredible to see 
Liam and Noel, and to, to a lesser extent at that point, the Stone Roses, they were probably two or three years before. Be so talented, be so cool, be on top of the pot, be on TFI Friday. I mean, Chris Evans was massive for me. I, I wanted to be a TV presenter for a while, and it was because of Chris Evans, the big breakfast on TFI Friday. It was, it was just, it was a brilliant TV and a brilliant time to be a kid. So um, we've got time for like a couple more questions. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, I'm gonna have to go in like three minutes. Okay. Can you can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, being in the last Star Wars film? Yeah, that was a JJ thing as well. You know, um, I've been friends with JJ for a long time, and when when he did the Force Awakens, I gave him a hard time. So, oh come on! I mean, like, I have a Star Wars tattoo. You know how important. Star Wars is to me. And he said, I know, but we're, we're using unknowns. At that point, Daisy Ridley and uh, John Boyega were, were relatively unknown. So he said, we don't want to put like established faces in there and throw people off in, in the galaxy far away. But he said, I'll keep in mind. So obviously he didn't direct the second one. And when it came around for him to direct the third one, I, just, I was just like, Jay, come on, you've already promised like two or three years ago, you're going to help me out. And he was like, just like, push, let me see what I can work out. And then England were playing Colombia in the um, in the European Cup, and JJ emailed me, and uh, whether it was joking or not, he said, uh, if England win, you can be in Star Wars. If they lose, they're going to give you a role to someone else. So I then watched this game, which went to the penalty shootout, if you guys remember, and we won. It's the first time England has ever won a penalty shootout in a major footballing competition. So that was, that was a good day. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. Well, um, have you got 30 seconds to play a game and then you can go? Let's do it. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, brilliant. I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel. I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel. We're going to play better oh, or worse. This Please. game is better or worse, and you have to say that the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinion, to score points. Beginning with Ronald Reagan. Is Ronald McDonald better or worse than Ronald Reagan? Better. Better. Is Colonel Sanders better or worse than Ronald McDonald? Better. 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 Is Carrie Fisher better or worse than Colonel Sanders? <laughs> better. Yeah, better. Better. Is Noel Edmonds better or worse than Carrie Fisher? Worse. Worse. Is Prince better or worse than Noel Edmonds? Better. Is My Prince God. Charles better or worse than Prince? Worse. 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 <laughs> Charles Dickens better or worse than Prince Charles? Oh man, that's tough. They're both geniuses. Uh, better, better, better. Is Charlie Chaplin better or worse than Charles Dickens? Better, oh, worse. Oh. Freddie Mercury better or worse than Charlie Chaplin? Worse, worse. Freddy Krueger better or worse than Freddie Mercury? Worse, worse, worse. He's a he's a paedophile who kills teenagers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, hey, you got a nine! A nine! You got a nine! You got a nine! You've done well. Dominic Monaghan got a nine, which means that he's not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Colshaw, Jason Lanford, Jason Today with ten, but he is as good as David Bedell, Ken Cheng, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, and Luke Morley with nine. And he's better than Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Henry Fraser, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaac, Simon West, John Niven, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griff Reese James, Sook Stark, Brown Osaid, Varsi, Stu Whiffen, Michael J. White, and Gillian White and eight. Richard Herring, James King, Lady Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Nell Fizzle, Frank Harper with six, and poor old Dave McClellan. Clean with five. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thank you. Welcome for to the club. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
I mean, Exo did uh, accompany that. They were very complimented. Um, it was great to talk to you guys. I'm sorry I could shoot off. Thank you for coming. That's all right. Yes. We've hit our time. That's great. Thank you very much. Have a great Cheers afternoon. Nat. Bye. Uh, that's uh, goodbye from me. Goodbye from Nat. Goodbye. Goodbye from Dominic. He's 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 waving, and uh, we're uh, everybody look after yourselves and each other, and uh, we'll write your fan mail in, and we'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye.